Can y'all hear me? Yes. Good morning. Good morning. It's good to see you guys again up here. How many of y'all are ready for summer? I know that's like a typical like public speaker question to ask youth, like, are you guys ready for summer? I don't know. I didn't want to just like dive right in, so. <laughs> hey, moms feel the same way, just so you know. <laughs> All right. Well, we are in the last bit of Judges today, so 19 through 21. And so most of us have kind of heard of the movie plot where a young, bright, ambitious musician comes to the big city hoping to make it big. We actually have someone in the audience today. Where's Riley? Actor, not a musician. So where is Riley? Dang it. No, I'm, he's my prop. <laughs> well, they end up famous. They get in with the wrong crowd and they spiral down into addiction and self-destruction. But that's not the Riley part, so. This, that's the nation of Israel. So the nation of Israel is a lot like that movie character. And they were oppressed as slaves in Egypt. They spent 40 years living in the wilderness, and now they've entered into the magnificence of Canaan. Canaan was this wealthy, cosmopolitan place, large urban areas, and it's easy to see why Israel would have been tempted by them. But despite how powerful the Canaanites were, God actually told them to go and drive them out of the land because God said if they didn't, they would begin to worship their pagan gods, marry their sons to Canaanite women, and not worship him alone. So fast forward, Israel didn't obey God. That's what this whole series has been about. They didn't fully drive out the Canaanites. They instead learned to do life right alongside them and they thought they could make it work. They thought they knew their hearts better than God. We won't be swayed by their influence, God. We'll keep worshiping you. Everything's going to be just fine. And as we've learned from the book of Judges, it's been one long forensic analysis on why it didn't end up just fine. So this is a part in the movie where the now successful rock stars lying on a bathroom floor strung out on drugs. So let's begin in chapter 19. So in those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim. So the story introduces us to this character, a Levite. Now the tribe of Levi was supposed to be the tribe that produced priests for Israel. They didn't get an inheritance, but they went around serving the other tribes of Israel. So they were a tribe deeply dependent on the people and God to provide for them. The next piece of information we're given is that this Levite is a sojourner. Now, a sojourner is someone who is residing in a place permanently or temporarily that is not their original home. We're seeing that right now in Ukraine and Poland. In the Bible, God calls himself a sojourner because he has no permanent dwelling place on earth. And he actually says his people are sojourning with him. So God wants us to see this life as temporary, and he wants us to see heaven as our permanent dwelling. So we've got this Levite from a tribe of people that God calls to be priests. Okay, sounds good. We know he's sojourning, meaning he's to live out a certain way before God and see this life as temporary. Okay, sounds good. And then we read the next verse, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem and Judah. And suddenly something seems a bit off. I mean, Levites were supposed to be holy and set apart, 
but this one's taken up the practices of the pagan nation Canaan. So let's talk about concubines. Who were they in the ancient world? Well, they were secondary wives. They were used mainly for sex or to provide more children. They were higher than a slave, lower than a wife. They were to be given proper food and clothing. Their children were to be considered legitimate. That doesn't mean they always were. Now, this information raises a question, well, why did God allow this in the Bible? Well, in the Bible, certain laws and protections were created for people who are poor, so they wouldn't be mistreated. Does that mean God created poverty, or he wants poverty to exist? No. But because the world now is fallen, poverty is a result of that brokenness. And in the same way, God made laws to protect vulnerable women from further mistreatment. He's controlling evil in a fallen world. That doesn't mean he allows it or wants it. So the next verse tells us that the concubine was unfaithful to him. Now, other translations say she became angry with him. We don't fully know why she left, but we do know the relationship with a Levite is not a loving one. And then it says the concubine went away from him to her father's house in Bethlehem and Judah and was there for four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. So when he gets to her father's house, we see the girl's father gladly welcome the Levite and persuade him to stay. And the father's a little enthusiastic in this section of scripture. He goes on and on saying things like, strengthen your heart, um, uh, be pleased to spend the night, let your heart be merry. And we're kind of like, why is he being so over the top here? Well, the father's fearful that the Levite could have his daughter put to death. Because the penalty for adultery and abandoning an owner were death and disgrace for the family. So he's trying his best to get on the Levite's good side. But both husband and father treat this woman as an object. One wants to avoid disgrace. The other wants to secure sexual favors. But neither one of them care about the woman herself. So after five days of eating, drinking, the father repeatedly urging the Levite to stay a little bit longer. The Levite, the concubine, and his male servant finally leave to head back home. And when night approaches, the male servant says, Hey, let's turn into the city of Jerusalem to stay the night. But the Levite says, No, we're not going to stay in a city of foreigners. We're going to go keep on and stay in Gibeah because that's a town controlled by Benjamites. That's one of Israel's 12 tribes. And in verse 15, it says, and he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. And so in ancient Israel, it was very unsafe to not have a place to stay. So travelers would go and sit in the square as a signal that they needed a place to stay for the night. And people of that town would take them in, feed them, allow them to stay in their home. It's like an ancient version of Airbnb. But by taking in a traveling stranger, the host was also committed to keeping that stranger safe. So we immediately notice something's not right in this town. And attention begins to enter into the story. Night is coming and no one is taking them in. Until finally another sojourner, not even a local of Gibeah, sees a Levite and his concubine and the old man says, peace be to you, I will care for all your wants only do not spend the night in the square. 
And as a reader, again, we notice this tension increase. What is so dangerous about staying the night in the square? Isn't this a town full of their own people? But then all concern seems to evaporate. He brings them into this home. He gives the donkeys feed. They wash their feet. They eat and drink. And it almost feels like we're back in the house again of the concubine's father. The old man and the Levite are eating, making their hearts merry. When it says that men from this city, worthless fellows, surround the home and begin to beat on the door. Now, this statement, worthless fellows, is really important because This word translates to sons of Belial. Now, Belial is a term used in Jewish literature to refer to Satan. So right away, the story alerts us that these worthless fellows are like the sons of Satan himself. And now they're pounding on the door of this house, saying, Bring out the man who came into your house that we may have sex with him. And at first, the old man heroically goes outside to face these men. And he makes two points. First, if you do this, it'll be a vile act to my guest. And second, I have a duty to show him hospitality and protect him. And we almost feel this sense of respect for the old man. I mean, he's standing up against this mob of men protecting his guests until we read what he says next. Behold. Here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out to you. Violate them. Do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. So by protecting his house guest, he offers two women to be raped instead. One of them being his daughter. And he doesn't even ask the Levi if he can offer up his concubine. It's just almost understood that she isn't worth anything. Because women were like property, it was okay to treat them like a leftover piece of meat to just throw out to a hungry mob of men. So women were viewed this way by pagan cultures, but God created men and women in his image with equal value. This was not how God wanted the men of Israel to treat women. So after the old man offers the two women to the mob, it says, but the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they had sex with her and abused her all night until morning. And as dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. Now, there's nothing I can add There's nothing more that I need to do to communicate the evil in this section. God's word is enough to describe the hell of this moment, but we cannot miss this, though. This was a real person. This isn't fiction. It's not a movie. It's a nightmarish historical account of a real woman, and we will never know her name. 
Now, nightfall and daybreak in Israel is about 12 hours long. She wasn't let go until daybreak. This was a 12-hour long assault until the brink of death. One commentator says it like this, If ever a human being endured a night of utter horror, it was she. That night must have been for her as dark as a pit itself. And her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the door of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. And he said to her, get up, let us go. But there was no answer. So there's some important unspoken details we need to notice here. First, the Levite seized his concubine, made her go out. These words are aggressive in their description. And then he obviously went to bed and was able to sleep because it says he got up in the morning. And then when he woke up, it says he went out to go on his way, meaning he had no intention of going to look for her until he realized she's lying at the doorstep. Now, we have to consider the state she must have been in after that night. And the Levite sees her and says, get up, like she's nothing more than an animal. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. Now, we see one other instance of this happening in the Bible. In 1 Samuel eleven seven, King Saul cuts up oxen into pieces and sends them throughout the territory of Israel as a way of threatening the men, hey, if you don't come out and fight for Israel, this is going to be done to you. And so again, we see the concubine being treated like this animal that even in her death, she's still being exploited and mistreated. So after the Levite sends the concubine's limbs to all the tribes of Israel, the leaders decide to gather and hear what the Levite has to say. And the first thing they say is, tell us, how did this evil happen? So the Levite tells them, but he conveniently omits certain facts. He tells them the concubine was violated and died, but he leaves out his role in the matter. He avoids the fact that he sacrificed her, in order to protect himself and allowed her to take the fall instead of him. And I think this is a good application for all of us because like the Levite, we can leave out parts of a story, make us look bad in all sorts of situations. We sometimes forget that when we willfully withhold certain facts, that is a lie. Partial honesty is not honesty. So it seems this event has finally gotten the attention of the leaders, leaders, and Israel is going to do something about it. And on their first try, they go to the Benjamites and they say, hey, hand over those evildoers so we can purge the evil from Israel. And the Benjamites are like, yeah, we're not going to do that. So they don't hand over a small mob of men, but instead the Benjamites actually double down and they gather all their fighting men together and they say, actually, we're going to go to war with you. 
And so when Israel's back is up against the wall, it says, And the people of Israel arose and went up to Bethel to inquire of God, Who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? So for the first time, we see the people of Israel call on the name of God, but it's pretty half-hearted. I mean, they want a helping God, but they don't want a saving God. They don't really ask God to save them or deliver them. They just want to treat God like he's some fortune teller. Hey, um, what tribe should we send up first? But God is merciful and tells him, send out the tribe of Judah. So Judah goes out. They suffer huge losses. God tells them again for a second time. And again, they lose in battle. And then in verse 25, it says, Then all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel and wept. And they sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And so after fasting, they asked God a third time. And God said, Go up. For tomorrow I will give them into your hand. So it took three times for the people of Israel to actually sincerely seek God's will. And this is what God's been looking for all along. So after the Israelites seek God with a renewed focus, God gives them victory against the Benjamites, except for 600 men who escape into the wilderness. So we don't have time to get into all the details that happen in chapter 21, but here's what you need to know. Because they didn't come to God right away and seek his will, they end up layering one sinful decision upon another. And that's just like us. Once we sin, we can keep it going by lying and covering things up or coming up with self-centered ways to fix our problems. And I remember when my kids were little, and they were learning to tie their shoes, and they would sometimes mess up in the process, and they'd end up with this big knot. And the way that they would try to get the knot out was they would just pull on the laces. And they would make the knot even more difficult to untangle. And then they'd finally bring their shoe to me when it was so bad that even I couldn't undo it. And we do the same thing with arson. Because we keep thinking we're trying to fix things, but we're really just pulling on the laces, making it worse. Now, there's something I don't want you all to miss. Because whenever we read a passage like this, there's something really easy that we can do. The more evil and horrific a story is, the easier it is for us to distance ourselves from what God wants to show us about ourselves. So in 2006, Dave and I, um, we went with Pastor Gary to Rwanda for a pastor's conference. And I knew that Rwanda had experienced a genocide a little over a decade prior to our trip. Now, for those of you that don't know, the word genocide means the deliberate killing of a large number of people from a particular nation or ethnic group with the intent of wiping them out. Now, I really wanted to understand, so I began to devour all these books on the genocide. And in 1994, a plane carrying the Rwandan president was shot down. The president was a Hutu, one of two ethnic tribes in Rwanda. The other tribe was Tutsi. 
And after the president's assassination, violence erupted, and Hutus began to systematically kill Tutsis. Over the next 100 days, 200,000 Tutsis would go on to kill 800,000 Tutsis. Now, normal people were handed machetes and ordered to murder their neighbors, their friends, and even relatives. They would be promised land, food, and money if they were willing to murder Tutsis. And just like Hitler concealed gas chambers and shower rooms, the Hutus in Rwanda were very careful to conceal just how many people were being killed. When the world began to see on the news gruesome images of bodies piled in the streets, the Hutus said, hey, keep on killing, but cover the dead bodies with banana leaves in the countryside rather than piling them in the streets. And so the more I learned about genocide, the more I was consumed with this question of how, how do normal people who got along with their neighbors, loved their family members and friends, could suddenly begin to kill them? I mean, any murder is awful, but there is this up-close and personal element to killing someone with a machete. And one day I read this particular account that began to help me understand, because many times Hutus would command other Hutus to murder Tutsis by threatening to kill them, their wife, children, or parents if they didn't murder Tutsis. So imagine someone holding a machete to your family, parents, or friends, and saying, if you don't kill this person, I will murder them. And I began to see how all of us, if we were in this situation, lived in a particular country, at a particular time period, put in an awful moral dilemma, could be capable of this. And in fact, this is what every genocide researcher has found. Christopher Browning says this, I could have been the killer or the evader. Both were human. And we are left then with the most uncomfortable of realities, ordinary, normal people committing acts of extraordinary evil. This reality is difficult to admit, to understand and absorb, but as we look at the perpetrators of genocide and mass killing, we don't need to ask who these people are. We know who they are. They are you and I. So rather though this disprove Christianity, it actually affirms Christian truth. Because in Romans 3, 12, and 15, we read that there is no one who does good, not even one. Their feet are swift to shed blood. So while you might sit out there in the audience today and go, I've never done anything that bad, what I'm trying to get at is even if you've never committed the evil in today's passage, we all have the capability for it in our hearts. We are all born Auschwitz-enabled. So how do we apply today's passage to our own hearts? Well, I titled this talk, Callous Hearts, because calluses cushion our hands and feet. And from an athletic perspective or sports perspective, they allow us to function without pain. 
So the characters' hearts in this story had calloused over. They had learned to do evil without experiencing pain over their evil. So when we turn our backs on God, we begin to dehumanize people. And I think one of the main ways, not the only way, but, but a big way that we dehumanize people today is through our screens. So I want you to just imagine with me for a second. Let's pretend that the setting for today's story is not ancient Israel, it's not the hallways of your school, the characters are not your public self, but let's pretend that all we've read today represents your virtual landscape, your online self. Now, you may have never spoken cruelly to anyone's face, but the text you send when you get home might tell a different story. Your public self might be sweet and positive, but you might manipulate, deceive, and tear others down online in order to make yourself look better. And you might be the funny guy, the nice guy, the shy, reserved type, and you've sat out there today and you just can't imagine disrespecting women like the men in this story, but would your Google search history tell us a different story? If we peered into your online self, would we see a guy wearing down young women by asking and badgering them day after day for pics until you got them, only to move on to the next girl? Isn't that just as callous as a Levite stepping over his dying wife? And are you, as a Young woman so intent on securing approval, attention, and security for men that you'll do whatever it takes to keep it, like sending a pic of yourself with a perfect filter, and you'll give in to that pressure all for a fleeting moment of being desired or adored, all the while knowing that feeling will never fill you up or satisfy you. Our hearts are calloused and hardened. And we need a king, but we rejected him. And we nailed him to a cross instead. The good news is that king didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead, and he now extends that love and mercy and forgiveness to those who believe. So I want to invite you today, if you're out there, and your heart is calloused, and you've tried being your own king, and you've sat on the throne of your life, and you're empty and dead inside as a result, or, or maybe you're someone out there and you don't really think you're that bad. I mean, you've got the good kid gig down pretty good on your own, and you just might tend towards being a naturally moral person. But the problem is you don't really have much need of God because you don't really see yourself as that bad. So there's good news, because there's hope for our desperate situation. This king doesn't just want to save you. He wants to make you a son or daughter. And he doesn't just forgive you, but he adopts you. And he continues to fight for you and deepen you in your faith. 
So the entire book of Judges shows us what happens when the king of this world is not ruling our hearts. And we've walked through the book of Judges to see what life looks like when there's no presence of a king in the land or in our life. And it's kind of been depressing at some parts, really a lot of parts. But I want to end today on a hopeful note. I want to actually fast forward to the end of the Bible. When Jesus the king returns and the earth is filled with him and his kingdom. Revelation 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. So thank you so much for listening today. I know you guys are probably tired of school, so I appreciate that. Um, I do actually have some questions for y'all today, so y'all can break out and go into...